Welcome to the Word Ministry of Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We trust that the following message will be a blessing. Open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the preaching and teaching of one of God's choice servants. This book came out at the right time. It came out October 1st when God began to highlight the church of all places in Iran. And uh, the church is growing the fastest in Iran. And they say that the greatest evangelist of the Middle East is actually the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, who started the revolution or overthrew the Shah of Iran, resulting in taking 52 American hostages, I think it was 1979. Now, why would you say he would be the greatest evangelist? Well, because the mosques are empty in Iran. Very few people are Muslims in real practice because uh, he showed the ugliness of parts of what I, uh, the Muslim faith is. And it started a revolution. And uh, that's where we get ISIS and other uh, groups that think they need to murder and kill people to follow their faith. And consequently, the church started growing after this so-called revolution. And now there's a huge house church movement. It's multiplying. And it rivals what's going on in China. The same thing happened in China. In 1949, there were only 1 million believers in China. Now there may be 200 million. And uh, what happened was when they threw the missionaries out, who brought in their Western culture and destroyed the buildings and tried to burn all the Bibles, the church went underground and started a small group movement, house church movement, and uh, the church exploded. And within like 20 or 30 years, there was 50 million believers. Now it's about 200 million, and that's why the Chinese government is trying so hard to destroy the church because they know that by the year 2050, all of China will be Christianized. Most of the intelligentsia are getting saved. Many students, business leaders, billionaires in China, and many of them are holding churches in their factories because having a church building is dangerous. So, um, and there's a huge house church movement. Well, the same thing's happening, happening in Iran. So God started highlighting that, and um, I would urge you to watch a YouTube video about the Iranian church. It's called Sheep Among Wolves. I cried when I watched this because it came out a week after I, wrote, uh, after I released this book. And this book is all about discipleship. Uh, we're trying to talk to people who will translate my book into Persian so we can get to the house church leaders in Iran. Um, and we need to pray for Iran. A lot of us, well, let's just bomb Iran. I mean, maybe just the nuclear facilities and things like that, but there are millions of Christians, brothers and sisters in Iran. So we need to take this crisis serious because the devil would love for us to kill our brothers and sisters. At the same time, we need to protect our country. So it's, it's a, our president needs a lot of prayer at this time. Yes. So anyway, that being said, this book came out when this movie, uh, documentary, two-hour documentary, Sheep Among Wolves, came out. And it's highlighting how many churches in America are what's called convert-driven churches. They just want to bring a lot of people in. But how they're not making a difference. 
how people's lives very rarely are being changed, that nobody's becoming disciples of Christ, or very few are. And because of that, our culture just gets worse and worse and worse, even though there's bigger and bigger churches, more and more churches popping up everywhere, but yet culture just gets worse. And the reason is because we're not making disciples. We're just trying to get converts. We're just trying to bring people in buildings. It actually never says once in the New Testament to make new converts. It says to make disciples. To make disciples. Matter of fact, the first five chapters of the book of Acts, it just talked about people being added to the Lord, believers were added to the Lord, but it never once used the word disciple until chapter 6, verse 7. And uh, then it says that the number of disciples multiplied. Then from that point on, they use the word disciple. Why is that? Because when someone first comes to Christ, they're not really a disciple. They just try to make up their mind. Are you really going to follow Jesus? Disciple implies you're a student. It implies you're disciplined. It implies you've gone through a process and that you've been baptized. And they wouldn't even baptize anyone until they were what was called catechized. They became catechumens that would go through a process. We see a process in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where when people came to Christ, it says they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to the prayers, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, which is having dinner and having communion. So they put them through a process. Evidently, it took several months before that process was complete enough for them to be called disciples. You can check it out yourself. Read Acts chapter 2 to 6. The word disciple is not mentioned once until chapter 6. So this book is about how Jesus changed the world. He had no army. He had no organization. He wrote no book. He never walked outside a small proximity of Jerusalem. He um, didn't do what most people would think. He needed to change the world, yet he changed the world. He started the greatest movement the world has ever seen, untold billions of people, not even including those who are in heaven right now. How did he do that? Well, he poured into 12 people. He made disciples. And then he had a, seven, a group of 70, he tells us in Luke chapter 10. So basically, the, Jesus knew how the world was going to change. He knew how to change our communities. He knew how to change our families. He knew how lives are going to be changed. So you need to ask yourself the question, am I a disciple or just a believer? Do I just do whatever I want? Am I focused or unfocused? The word disciple means you're a student. That's where the word discipline comes. It means that you prioritize God. It means that God is first in your life. I was a professional musician before I came to Christ. I practiced my guitar six to 12 hours a day. I would not uh, even go out with my friends. I did violin solos, flute solos, uh, guitar solos are too boring. I was so into music. I would just get buy flute books and, and saxophone and, and, and I would try to play their solos. And, and that's how I got into college. I played uh, Paganini's violin solos to get into music school. And I disciplined myself. When I came to Christ, within three to six months, I put the guitar down, did the opposite. Now, I'm spending six to eight hours a day studying the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do that. I didn't have a family. I was 19 years old. I didn't have a lot of responsibilities, but I realized, wait a minute, I'm all in or I'm all out. So you may not be able to study the Bible even an hour a day, but the point is you need to be focused. That's what a disciple is. So you need to ask yourself the question while I'm speaking, am I a disciple or a mere believer? 
Do I want to play, be on the fence and play both sides? Live the way I want during the week? Try to be a Christian on Sunday? Or am I all in? Here's another question to ask yourself. If you are a disciple, are you making disciples? Because it's not just about how you do, but it has to do about what you're doing for others. I remember reading Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders. One of the things that stuck out in that book to me was he taught us how the teacher learns more than the student. When you are making disciples, you're actually learning more than the one you're teaching, the one you're holding accountable because you have to live a certain standard. It's reminding you of the doctrines of Christ, the first principles, the things that you are teaching them, you get convicted if you're not doing it. You hear what I'm saying? You're telling them, well, you need to you know, love your wife, or you need to put God first, and you need to be in church, you need to do all these things. But yet, if you're not doing it, you're going to start feeling convicted. So making disciples is one of the safest things you could do to be a disciple yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we have to understand that, and we have to realize that that is... A mandate. Jesus commanded us before he ascended into heaven. He actually commanded us make disciples of all nations, meaning all ethnic groups. Go to every nook and cranny, every hamlet, every village, every town. Uh, it's not a white church, a black church, a Hispanic church, a rich church, a poor church. It's the world. Make disciples of all the nations. And that's what we're called to do by Jesus. So we want to find out how Jesus started this incredible movement. As I said, and it's in the back of the book, Jesus had no servants, yet they called him master. He had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet kings feared him. He won no military battles, yet he conquered the world. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb, yet he lives today. How did he form this great, great movement? And that's what this book is about. And so, number one, Jesus processed these people in the context of his church. He said, follow me, this is Mark 1, 17, and I will make you to become, somebody say, to become, to become. a fisher of men. So in our Bibles, it says, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. But in the transliteration of the Greek, it actually doesn't sound good in English. It's just grammatically awkward. But it actually says in the Greek, I'll make you to become fishers of men, which implies even stronger that it's a process. A process. Somebody say it's a process. process. Someone say, I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. So to be a disciple, it implies that there's a process. So many of us want everything done right away. You know, we have microwave Christianity. We think that if you come up and somebody lays hands on you, all of a sudden you're going to walk with God. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you get a prophecy. Someone gets a prophecy. God has called you to be rich. God has called you to be a millionaire. Right away you think, you know, you're going to have a lot of money in the next day. No. Every prophecy is conditional upon obedience and being committed to a process. I've heard of people who got a word from somebody that they were called to be an apostle. The next day they have business cards saying Apostle Joe. No, 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 no. Before that happens, there's a mean, mean test. From the time you get a word from God or an assignment from God to the fulfillment of that assignment is a mean, mean test. 
I mean, uh, you hear what I'm saying? So Jesus said, if you follow me, I'll make you to become. That implies you're not yet there. I'm not yet there, I'll tell you that much. And I've been, this January 10th, I'll be uh, walking with Christ for 42 years. And I'm more excited about Jesus than I was when I first came to him. He just gets greater and greater and, and he gets more real and scriptures become more alive. But anyway, enough about that. I just want you to understand that we're not there yet. I will make you to become implies that from the time he called you to the time of your fulfillment of your assignment is going to be a process. God is patient. He's very patient. He doesn't care how frustrated you get. He doesn't care how much you complain. Matter of fact, God doesn't even care if you're happy. <laughs> I know the American gospel is all about happiness. Come to church, seven reasons how you can be happy, how you can be fulfilled, how you can be self-actualized. That's all the American gospel. God doesn't really care if you're happy. He cares if you're faithful. And if you lose yourself in God, you'll have more happiness and joy than you ever knew what to do with. The problem is when you're holding on to your own things, there's a struggle. And you're in between two opinions, and that's where... The discontent comes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Amen. And so he tells us, follow him and I'll make you to become. I'll make you to become something. I'll make you to become a fisher of men. And uh, what we think is happening is that, you know, we come to church and God immediately gives us everything. I remember when we first came to, I was only a Christian a few months and I was sharing the gospel with a person I thought was a mature Christian. She was saying things like, come to Jesus and he'll make you rich. He'll make you rich? I was wondering what she meant by that. I was thinking, okay, he'll make you rich in spirit. He'll make you rich. She never said anything, but I'll make you rich, meaning God's instantly going to make you rich. And I said, oh my God, what gospel is this? <laughs> I even knew better. She was a Christian for many years. Uh, uh, it's crazy, you know, and now with the internet, you have people who are self-ordained prophets, yeah. dropping words on nations yeah. and giving you prophetic words and all. And who they have no, they've not even gone through a process. Jesus matured them in the context of a church. There were 12, then there were 70. They were a community of people that were together. So you have these people that are dropping words. We don't know how their marriage is. We don't know what church they're accountable to. We don't know who's their pastor. And they just have a platform. They have a lot of followers. And they're trying to bypass the process because of the internet, which gives you instant access. And it's crazy what's going on today. And, uh, and so some of it is good because look, you know, we want to get the word out, but at the same time, you got to know who you're listening to. You got to examine the source. You got to examine their life. As a matter of fact, I'm part of a panel that is uh, gave an opinion regarding an evangelist by the name of Todd Bentley, and uh, that panel made a decision based on our opinion that he should resign from. He should be pulled out of ministry. I'll be on Dr. Michael yeah. Brown's show tomorrow at three o'clock. If you want to watch it, yeah. it'll be. Line of fire. We're going to explain that based on my latest article, um, uh, Biblical Ethics in an Age of Scandal. Yes. So, you want to watch that? You can. But the point is, it's all about the process. It's all about the process. 
And so when we understand process, we realize that God is patient. If you read the book of Exodus, God, you see how patient God is. God waited 40 years, not four years, not four months, not four seconds, 40 years of processing the Jewish people before they were ready and capable of coming into the promised land. Oh my God. I'm not saying you gotta wait 40 years before God fulfills his promise, but a lot of it is up to you. I know some Christians that just repeat their first year of salvation year after year. They might be saved for 30 years, but they're still at a point that they were when they were a Christian one year because they stopped the process. They stopped allowing God to deal with them. Could be something even stupid, a stupid habit that they didn't want to give up, and they stopped God from working. So God is patient. He's not going to force you to do anything. He's not going to force you to serve him. But... God is concerned more with the process than the product. And the more we complain, the more we stop the process. The more we respond to God, the more we allow him to make us like Christ. And so it's not what happens to you that determines if you'll be like Jesus. It would it's what happens in you. It's how you respond to the problem. The problem never is what destroys you. What destroy you, destroys you is how you respond to the problem. Everybody here has problems. If I was asked you to raise your hand, if you have a big challenge in your life, everybody I'm sure is gonna raise their hands, so I'm not even gonna bother doing that. I mean, the, big, the, the, good, the weird thing would be if there's someone who raised their hand, they don't have a big challenge. Then I say, come pray for all of us. All right, I don't know, maybe you're delusional. <laughs> Maybe you're not in this world. I don't know. I don't want to go far in that statement. But, you know, uh, but everybody's got challenges, right? Everybody. So God uses these challenges as opportunities for growth. Some are from the devil that God allows the devil to attack us. So we have to resist the devil. Some of it's temptation. We've got to resist that. There's all sorts of challenges. Some is nothing to do with you. It's other people who are not redeemed. How many know we're trying to live a risen life in a fallen world? You're gonna have, you might be walking with God, doesn't mean your wife is, doesn't mean your kids are, doesn't mean your bosses, it doesn't mean your coworkers. You know what I mean? It's, it's all around you. So uh, you wanna live in a cave somewhere, you're not gonna learn how to process things with God. It's part, part of how you process is by living in the real world, in business, in school, in family. And God uses community in order to process us. So you can't extract yourself out of the church or out of community and expect to continue to grow. And so God is not in a rush, but the good news is God is patient with you, even when you mess up, even when you fall, even when you fail. He'll just keep being there, trying to encourage you, trying to help you. So Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you to become, meaning we're not there yet, but thank God Jesus is able to bring us to the place he's called us to be. The second thing he said, we already said it, was he said, I will make you to be fishers of men, meaning Jesus saw their potential. God sees your potential. God sees who you were called to be. 
And uh, uh, sometimes we just think of ourselves the way our family thought of us. We think of ourselves the way our friends thought of us. Uh, sometimes we limit what God wants to do. But one of the powerful gifts of the gift of prophecy is in the spirit people could speak things that God sees about our potential, our calling, about our future. And it's so powerful. And one of the things that happens when we make disciples is we talk to them and we tell them they're calling. I love it when we take new men who come into the church and we just speak over them and we tell them what God has called them to be, what God has called them to do. And no one's ever done that before in their life. They've only heard negative words. They've only heard things that they don't do right. They've only, most of the things that we hear in our life are negative. Do you realize that? You know, when your boss calls you into the office, it's usually not to commend you. Uh, when you're, I remember I was called into the principal's office. I don't know how many times. Um, it wasn't because they were praising me. And uh, most of our conversations are littered with, with negative things. But when we're going to make disciples and when God's processing us, he encourages us. He tells us about our future. He tells us about our potential. And when we are pouring into somebody, I love it when I, I look into the eyes of someone and I just tell them something about themselves they've never seen. They've never understood. And that's part of our call as a church is to call those things that are not as though they were. Speak life. Speak power. Speak purpose. Speak potential over one another. Because God knows in the world they're only hearing bad news. You know how many incredible testimonies every day. People getting healed. God moving powerfully. God doing great things. That's not the front page of the news. That's not going to be on world news tonight. All you're going to hear is uh, crime. You're going to hear about this and that and ravaging and through uh, you know uh, hurricanes and and uh, wildfires and all. It's only why because bad news sells. But that doesn't mean there's nothing good happening. So God is doing greater things than the devil could ever do. God is doing greater things than we could ever do. And God believes in you. God made you. God made you in His own image after His own likeness. And let me tell you something. The image of a temple represented the deity in that temple. The image, uh, the idol, whatever it was, was the epicenter of power that conducted that force. Whatever it was of God, whatever it was. So that image was the key to connecting with that God in the temples that were made. So when God made the universe, the universe became God's temple and the earth became a very sacred place. And what did God say? God said, I will make man in my own image. Who are you? You are the temple of the living God. You are the one called to represent God to this world. You are the sacred place. The church is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And that's why we have incredible assignments from God. That's why you've got to stop thinking of yourself after the flesh. That's why you got to stop thinking of yourself based on your nickname. When some of my old friends see me, they still think of a guy who was in a lot of fights, playing music, doing this, that, and the other thing. And they call me, you know, Joey, this and that, and the other thing. And um, they look at me according to the flesh, even though I've been walking with God for 42 years. Your parents may still look at you the same, especially your brothers and sisters. They may look at you the same. But you have to think of how God names you, how God calls you. 
What is your identity in God? As a matter of fact, the third point is when Jesus saw Peter, which means a small immovable stone, he said, I'm going to make you a rock. He said, your name is going to be Cephas. I am going to change your identity. In John chapter 1, verse 42, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. He turned a small, movable, impetuous, compulsive guy who was up and down like a yo-yo, who you couldn't rely upon, a fisherman who had no biblical knowledge, a person who actually denied Jesus three times, and within 50 days, he became the leader of the church, said, upon this rock, I will build my church. The first 10 chapters of the book of Acts shows that Peter was the leader of the church. He was the spokesman on the day of Pentecost. He was the one who opened up a door in uh, Samaria after Philip the evangelist evangelized Samaria. He had to come and pray the Holy Ghost upon that city. He was the one that ministered to Cornelius, the first non-Jewish people besides the Samaritans. They were fully pagan. He was the one God used to bring the spirit and to bring the gospel to the non-Jews. This is a guy who was a rough fisherman, a guy who was constantly cussing, a guy who was constantly going up and down, a guy who was constantly doing whatever he wanted to do. He had no biblical knowledge, and yet Jesus said, I'm making you a rock. Yes. What does Jesus say about you? Yes. Do not go by your past. Say. You would ask Peter's parents, what do you think this boy is going to be? Oh, he's going to be a good fisherman the rest of his life. I can't rely on him. He's very emotional, does what he wants, but, you know, he'll be... No, God has his hand on him. God says, I'll make you to become something. What is God making you to become this year? This year could be the greatest year of the rest of your life. You begin to yield to Jesus. The more we complain about that, our challenges, the more we don't understand how God's working through circumstances to make us like Jesus. I learned something a long time ago. When you complain, 80% of the people are happy. Something bad is going on in your life. And the other 20% don't care. So that's why I don't bother complaining anymore. Or I try to stop myself from complaining. And so God is doing something very powerful in your life. And he's changing your identity. What do you think of yourself? How do you view yourself? I'm only going to finish with this point, this, I think, almost 20 chapters in the book. I only touched little parts of three chapters. But when God wanted to do something with Abram, he had to change his identity. He had to get Abram to believe something that was impossible. He had to get Abram to believe that he, at that point he was 75, his wife was around 75, but her womb was barren. And he had to believe that that womb would be opened up. God gave him a word at 75 years old. And how God helped him was he said, from now on your name will not be called Abram, but Abraham. Which means in the Hebrew, a father of many nations. God changed his identity so that he could actually believe. Some of you call yourself by your nickname, which triggers your past. Some of these names are not something you want to be called by and known by. 
some people brag about their past as a way of giving a testimony, but there's a fine line between being braggadocious and giving you testimony to share what God is doing or God has done in your life. And so your identity has to change. And every person who addressed Abraham from that point on reminded him of his destiny, which meant that it takes a community, it takes a church to bring someone into their destiny. Abraham didn't get the word alone. He said that your name is now going to be called the father of many nations. He said to Sarah, your name is going to be Sarah, a mother of many nations I've made you. And what did that do? That meant that everybody in their family, the 318 people that worked for them, all their neighbors, all the people they did business with, they all reminded the both of them of their destiny. And they had to be reminded because it took 25 years. God doesn't wait until it's difficult. God waits until it's impossible before he could use you. Someone once said to me, it's hard being a Christian. I said, it's not hard, it's impossible. If you don't die, let Jesus live in you, you can't do it. You don't have the Holy Ghost moving in you, you can't be a Christian. It's impossible. This is not trying to you know, put down the works of the flesh. You try to do that, you're in trouble. It's putting God first, getting filled with the Spirit, letting His power work through us. And so, 25 years later, when Abraham was 99, Sarah was 100 years old. She was barren at 50. She was barren at 30. She was barren at 20. But God waited till she was 100 before Isaac was conceived in her womb. My God. That is quite amazing. So God wanted to get all the glory. And what does that tell us? A, we have to change our identity. Doesn't mean you have to change your name legally, but how do you view yourself? You have to call yourself what God called you according to his word. You have to identify yourself based on your assignment, not on what other people have put upon you. If you go by what other people say about you, oh my God, we're in trouble. You are in trouble. Some of the things that people have said to me over the years, I look, some of it is good criticism, but some of it, you know, is coming from another source, from the evil one. So we need to understand our identity based on what God's word says about us. And as we do that, we'll be able to fulfill our assignment. But Please understand, it took a community. The name change meant that everybody around Abraham, everybody in proximity to Abraham and his household was part of this process. And so, as I end this today, I'm going to ask you the question, who is discipling you? Who is helping you in your journey? Every one of you should be in a small group or at least have somebody speaking into your life. Everybody here could be part of a phone call just for 15 minutes a week, someone praying with you. Everybody here could be connected to a community. There's even one community that meets on Zoom video because some of us are so busy. They meet on a regular basis, pouring into each other. And so the question arises, do I want to be a disciple or a mere believer? Just want to be a believer? 
But a thief on the cross, he went to heaven, but he definitely wasn't a disciple. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But he did nothing for God. He made it to heaven. You want to be in eternity? You never did anything for God, but you made it? That's what you want. That's what's going to happen. But you want to be responsible for bringing at least one other person into the kingdom. Everyone should win one, and everyone should have at least one person they're pouring into. Now, you might be a new Christian. You need to be disciple first. That's fine. At a certain point, though, you have to start making other disciples. I was a new Christian, too. I just told my old friends what God did for me, and I didn't know. When they were starting to come to Christ, I was just giving advice, reading the Bible, bringing them to church. I didn't realize I was making them. I was discipling these people, even though I was just a new Christian. Just tell them what you know. Freely you've received, freely give. And, and so, whether we do it intentionally or not, let's start pouring into other people. Let's start sharing our faith. And let's start encouraging those that we know are in the Lord. We trust that you were blessed. For more information regarding our church, please go to our website at www.resurrectionchurchofny.com or call 718-436-0242, extension 0.